Hello and welcome to Exit the Stage Door. I am your host, Aaron Teachman, and this week it is my absolute privilege to introduce Ryan Connolly. Uh, if that name is not familiar, uh, it's because he uh, he was only a transient part of the Baltimore Washington theater scene in that he sang for only one season with Virginia Opera not too long ago. I saw him at the, pa- uh, not the Patriot Center, that's a lie. I saw him at George Mason University. Is that the Patriot Center? Uh, I'm not up on my Fairfax County stuff. Anyway, look, he performed for Virginia Opera, which is in Norfolk, Richmond, and in Fairfax, and that totally counts. And would otherwise be kind of cheating because he's actually based in Cincinnati, which is where I interviewed him. But uh, he's my friend, and I'm like, I don't know. Look, Ryan Connolly's a cool dude, and uh, it's super fun to have a friend who's an opera singer. And we talked about opera a lot and a bunch of other things, including Germany and speaking German, which, you know, I'm super nerdy about and totally a fan of. But the point is, Ryan Connolly is awesome and... I'm super happy to be able to give you this interview, which I had a total blast recording on the way back from the Humana Festival in Louisville. And, uh, <laughs> guys, I really hope you enjoy this episode. It was, it's, it, it's one of my favorites. And, uh, yeah, here is your dose of opera for the next two weeks or, or not. I, you could see another opera. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it's Ryan Connolly and X. Yeah, it's Ryan Connolly. I screwed that up. The Bach Passions. <laughs> <laughs> you have to just take all ping out of your voice whatsoever. It's it just uh, being in the presence of microphones like this, where you have to like really oh, put yeah. yourself next to the microphone. It it does. I find I I change my I change my voice. Yeah. And there are definitely times. Uh, we started, by the way. Oh, um, good. There are definitely times, though, when I doing it in real life. Oh, really? I'm like, hey, that's my microphone voice. What mm. am I doing? Uh... And then you get very self-conscious. <laughs> yeah. That's like a big aspect of performing, too. That's like uh, a, a guy who I used to train with in my undergrad. He said, like, the biggest barrier to performing is being self-conscious. So you have to put your focus on the other person because then you're not thinking about yourself. Right. So, of course, he does all these crazy, like, avant-garde shows. We did uh, um, a Cavalli opera called Legisto, which nobody ever does. It's about the half-son of Apollo, or like, no, yeah, something like that. Anyway, the son of Apollo, who is only a half-god, but he dies and then claws his way back from the underworld. And uh, But it was very avant-garde. Everyone was in a giant box for the entire show, like three and a half hours. You weren't allowed to leave the stage. Oh, okay. And, uh, All right. I was, uh, I was doing a travesty role, which is a nice way to say that I was playing a woman. Ah, okay. Um, so I was like an old maid because a tenor, like singing in high register, kind of sounds like an old woman. Or conversely, uh, <laughs> as it often happens in a church choir, old women sing in the tenor section because they can't find enough old men who can sing that high. Uh, so it's nice to see that problem continues. It starts in high school and then it goes right <laughs> right all the way through. So um, so yeah, I was in a dress with like giant breasts and you know singing on stage. It was good. Um, but it was a thing where everything was improvised because it was a very like avant-garde thing. And so he wanted a lot of like rapid movement and, uh, so, but his whole thing was like, focus your, put your focus on the other Mm -hmm. singers on stage because then you won't be thinking about what you look like. Mm -hmm. And that's like a barrier to making art. So 
I don't know. We deal with with like that kind of stuff a lot less than traditional like straight theater because for us it's a lot more like you need to move here and you need to like go to this part of the stage to sing this part. You know, for us it's so much more like a dance than it is mm-hmm. a character sometimes. Right, right. The, the 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 character has to come out in the vocal performance first and then if there's any physicality after right. that that but like people are here to hear you sing right <laughs> so yeah that's the that's the focus right and, and it's not the 70s anymore so like people don't stand and deliver like Pavarotti they don't just like stand in the middle of the stage but you know you still have to be able to sing although you will find more and more that you do a lot more moving and a lot more things that are like difficult to sing while doing mm-hmm. um which show did you did you see Ariadne yes so like the 45 minutes of dancing that we had to do yes was like I probably could not have done that unless we had had the production time and the rehearsals where we spent like eight hours one day learning that choreography right and doing that while singing is like another step on top of that where you have to learn all the choreography and just be able to make it through because we singers aren't really known to be great acrobats (laughs) and then on top of that then they're like all right so now that you can kind of do this without dying now you have to learn how to sing all of the German while you do that. So I think it was probably easiest for me and for um, Audrey Luna, uh, the soprano, who uh, Audrey, interestingly, left there to go. So she left it during that production to go get a Grammy because <laughs> she won a Grammy for her recording of The Tempest, which is a new opera oh. um, at the Met. Of and course. then she went back to the Met to sing The Doll, uh, Olympia, in Tales of Hoffman. Oh, Which, wow. Which, if you haven't seen Hoffman, do you know I have Hoffman? not seen... I mean, I've, re- I've actually read The Tales of Hoffman, but I haven't actually seen it. Yeah. It is... It's gotta be weird. It is like, my favorite opera. Yeah? Oh, wow. I mean, okay. I can unequivocally say, like, that is the last opera I ever want to sing, and it will be the last opera I ever sing, because uh, it is the, like, longest, hardest tenor role. As- I mean, aside from Wagner, I guess. But... It's definitely not my voice, and so I always joke that, like, when I know I'm going to be done and, like, I'm never going to sing again, I will make sure that I actually never sing again because I will, like, explode my vo- voice Right, just on blow stage. it out. Yeah, right, totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, great show, though. It's, like, a solid four hours. It's five acts. Wow. But it's, yeah, so it's two framing acts. Sorry, bump the mic. <laughs> two framing acts. Uh at, the, at either end, and then the three acts in the middle are okay. three of the stories. Mm. So it kind of takes the the angle that Hoffman, the author, is the main character of the entire opera. Oh, okay. So in the beginning, they're in a bar next door to an opera theater where they're doing Don Giovanni, and Hoffman is a drunk and kind of a, you know, like everybody loves him at the bar because he tells cool stories, but he's kind of a loser. But he's in love with the prima donna who's singing um, Don Anna in Giovanni. And so he's kind of, like, drunkenly talking about how he's in love with this woman. Um, and they, like, try to, like, be like, oh, come on, like, tell us a story. So he, like, sings one of, a sh- like, a shortened version of Kleinzak, which is one of his sh- short stories. And then he, like, starts kind of going crazy. And then he starts talking about how he's been in love three times before. And then each of the three preceding acts is one of his loves, quote-unquote, that then it goes awry somehow. So the first one is Olympia, the doll. And that, I mean, I don't know. I was like 18 the first time I heard this <laughs> opera. And because uh, it was when I was doing it, I was my, it was my freshman year of college. Right. And I had never anticipated that something written in the 1820s 
would have the in in French it's automate, which mm-hmm. literally is an automaton. Yep. Like Hoffman was writing about robots essentially in the 1800s, and like that like blew my mind. I couldn't deal with the fact that something so progressive was uh, like in sci-fi genre, you know, because yeah, yeah. I'm a huge nerd anyway. So like it was like. <laughs> blowing my mind that that existed already but um so you yeah. get any credit for that by the way like which is absurd i know it's insane you look at the history books and like the, that was i mean you know and his contemporaries did similar things like um there's the one other author who was like a duke or something or a, he was a royalty member and he also wrote and they like hung out a lot anyway Etienne Hoffman? I yeah. Hmm. I'd have to remember. You're digging back in my German degree right <laughs> Well, I, I, have, I ended up doing my one of my thesis in my oh, undergrad okay. on yeah. Hoffman because gotcha. I enjoyed it. So so I did a lot of digging around. This was before I had taken any German also. Mm. So I did a lot of digging around in the, the library at Temple trying to figure out all that and like trying to find texts that weren't in German that were translated so I could like do the yeah, research because yeah, I didn't really speak hard. the language. It was nuts. The Germans have a very particular affinity for Hoffman too, who lived in Berlin. And like, if you, if, yeah. if you if you've been to Berlin, I haven't. No, I need to go. Actually, I'm sure that's. Good. I might be trying to go this year. Ooh. I have um, uh, my wife and I have a very dear friend who we went to school with here at, at CCM, who is fluent because she used to teach at an English German kindergarten in Houston. She in went she, to what? She went to Rice for her undergrad. Oh wow! Yeah, and uh, for voice. Because um, Rice is also a, a very good music school. Um, that's another one where pretty much everybody goes for free. Gotcha. Um, very good teaching staff. Um, Are they connected at all to the Houston Grand Opera? Or is it no, just... Houston Grand is its own animal. Right. Because um, they have their own young artist program. So oh, they have a huge okay. competition every year. And then the people who... It's the same as Lindemann and the Met. People who win Houston Grand aren't guaranteed a spot at the Ooh. Houston Grand Opera young artist program. But it's kind of implied. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, yeah. Like backstage when they're winning, it's like, hey, do you want to do this program? And I don't know. You hear all kinds of political things, especially with Lindemann, where it's like, do you want to do this program? And if you say no, then you don't win. Uh, and if you say yes, then you win. And that's how that works. Right. Um, but so she went there. And then after her undergrad, she spent a year teaching at this kindergarten. So she's like fluent in German. Mm-hmm. So she moved to Berlin two years ago to sing, as a lot of us do. Um, Germany loves American singers. So, really? Oh, that's oh, interesting. Yeah. They love us. Well, because it's, it's a totally different culture over there. Yeah, well, that's There's true. There's <laughs> several houses in every town, even if it's a small town, and they need singers, and it's all on fest contracts, so it's all, like, salary positions, year- and two-year contracts, sometimes Whoa. up to five-year contracts, yeah. Holy cow. So, like, um, Megan was dating a guy for a little while who, he was a fest contract chorus singer for the Comische Oper Berlin. And so he just sings chorus and small roles, and he's a tenor, and that's a career. Yeah, him. absolutely. I mean, you know, he has a he has housing. A lot of them give housing as well. Like you live in an apartment, and they pay for you to move there, and then you just live there and sing, and you're on call like six days a week. Um, you know, it's kind of like the only job comparison to that in the states is the Met chorus or like the lyric chorus. Mm-hmm. Um, there aren't very many like full time choruses here. But you can kind of do a similar thing with lead roles, where like, once you get up high enough in the ladder, you just travel around and do roles, and mm. like your agents just get you roles. It's so much easier, I guess, than in the states because it's so much smaller of an area, and there's mm. so many more. Oh yeah, houses, of course. Right? right, right. So you might be traveling 
two hours as opposed to like eight. Right. Yeah. Or like just driving instead of flying or right. taking a train. You know, um, my voice teacher here told a really good story. He used to live with a, a tenor named Bruce Ford, which is a not very well known tenor who is incredible. One of the best, like full voiced, li- like full lyric tenors I've ever heard. Sings a lot of really obscure German repertoire, which was kind of his like wheelhouse because when Tom was living with him, he got a call, uh, Bruce got a call, and it was somebody, they like lived in the south of Germany, it was somebody up in the north, and they were like, hey, we're doing this show, our tenor is sick, we don't know anybody else in the country that can sing it. We know that you did it four years ago. Can you sing tonight? Oh my god. And he said, okay, what's the fee? And the guy told him the fee. And he said, all right, double it. And uh, you're going to have to hold the curtain because I'm going to be half an hour late. <laughs> and his wife got the car and drove him while he looked over the score to, like, refresh his memory. Right, He yeah. got there half an hour late, and he sang the show. And he made, like, whatever. That's amazing. <laughs> and that was, that was, like, his career once he was, in a, you know, in his 40s because he had already done all of these roles across Germany. And then he was just like, well, I already know all these, and I'm the only one. So now I'm just going to do them, <laughs> right? <laughs> which is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I, that's that's kind of the dream in, in, in many respects. In that's the, sense the dream. That, like you, you, you get, I mean, the, it occurs to me in bureaucratic terms. You, sure. you become indispensable. So you get, you, that's, that's your track. Exactly. You are the one. That's what you have to do. Even over here, you have to be the guy who is known or girl for doing a thing. You are, you know, like even you're the character tenor guy. You do a mean Bardolfo and Falstaff. That's a skill. Mm. Being funny in like a in like a dopey way or like being charismatic. That's all marketable skills. <laughs> yes. So yeah, it's a it's a thing. Anyway, I'm dominating the conversation here. That's the whole point. Oh, um, the true. more you dominate it, the better. <laughs> uh, but where what were, well, we were talking about being in Berlin. Oh, um, because oh, yeah. because Etia Hoffman lived around um, the. Uh, there's a set of cathedrals that are like across from each other. Hmm. They're featured strongly in uh, Run Lola Run. One of yeah. the squares that she runs across okay. is um, the Französische Dom. And uh, there's actually a lovely, it's not a beer keller because it's not actually a keller, but there's a beer garten around the corner that's quite nice. It's awesome. just off of all of the, like the opera houses are a couple blocks away and stuff like that. But um, that's where A.T. Hoffman lived. That's awesome. Um, and he has a particular place in, in German literature that is really fascinating right. be- because of these inventive stories and because of the, the German romantics, like, they set the tone for, the, for, the, for how Germans understand themselves and for how Germans understand what literature is, what an author is, and what to look for in an author. Yeah. So that, that entire generation, um, even the, even, a lot of them are bound together, like the Schlegels are bound together with... Um, sure. with and obviously Goethe and Schiller. I mean, yeah. Goethe dominates it for such a long period of time. And then... Yeah. And you have like young guns like Kleist who eventually yeah. shoots I his lover and kills himself. And Heine, of course, who is amazing. Yeah. Heine is like the one that I, it's my go-to because it, it's the only one I really know a lot about because <laughs> I've done Die Liebe and ah. that's like a great Heine piece. And it's a similar thing too to Hoffman. I don't know. They always talk about insanity. It's always like oh, yeah. so good and like so dark. It's just like, it's classic German romanticism when it's like talking about that stuff. So Yeah, it's great. I love it. I love how in, both of them are underrated because... Especially in American culture, like mm. you don't understand how awesomely gothic and dark these stories are, but also how very pointedly funny they can be. Especially Heine, yes. who is a, a social critic 
with a very sharp pen. Yeah. I would, I, if John Oliver did poetry, we're, we're talking that kind of wheelhouse. Sure, like, definitely. <laughs> absolutely skewering yeah. hilariously the people oh, that's around That's a good him. comparison. So I, 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 it's kind of a shame that, I mean, I'm not very well, well versed in music or opera, but it sure. is definitely a shame that I haven't like sat down to listen to something like Tales of Hoffman. Because oh, yeah. Definitely do. There's a really great recording of, um, I believe it's 2003, and uh, it's one of the few Roberto Alagna recordings that I re- recommend. Um, he's a very controversial tenor. Uh, he kind of has blown his voice out. Mm. Um, but it's because he just, I mean, some people, and you'll see this in, in opera, since it's a very athletic singing, you either see people who are like to the wall all the time and they have short careers, more like an athlete career, mm-hmm. or you see people who have very refined technique and will sing until they're 80. Wow. Okay. Um, one of the teachers at CCM is the optimal technician. His name is Bill McGraw, very well-known teacher in the States. He's, I think, well, I guess maybe I shouldn't say his age. He is of retiring age, but he sounds like a 35-year-old baritone. You would wow. never know hearing him sing that he is like over 50 um, because he has flawless technique. But you see a lot of singers, Roberto Alagna, Stephen Costello. You know, I think of tenors because it's my oh, voice type. Right, yeah. But um, that they sing so hard and it's very passionate singing mm-hmm. and it's very emotional singing, but um, it's not a sustaining you know, sound. It's yeah, not, right. It's not a healthy exactly. voice. Right, yeah. So Alanya was singing very well in 2003, um, sings Hoffman like incredible. I mean, it's a long sing. Like I said, it's like a four-hour show. And it's, I mean, A to C in every act. You know, at the end, in act five at the end, he kind of is like losing his mind at the end. And uh, he sings like two or three Cs right in, right in a row. It's so good. Uh, and Natalie Desai sings Olympia. Um, and I can't think of the uh, Korean soprano who sings Julietta. Um, I don't know if you know that. Do you know that story? The one where he goes to the uh, opium den and there's a demon. There's like uh, Mephistopheles there stealing people's souls and putting them in gems. I, I so should. Good. I must have. I mean, I read the whole. I like, I've read sure. almost everything I ever yeah. wrote. So. Well, and, and but it's been a long time. To be I don't fair, know, so. too, which ones are pulled directly from the stories and which ones are like made a little bit differently to work right. for a show. Or also. When you do a production, sometimes they fudge the details a little bit too to make it work on stage for mm, their predi- mm-hmm. you know particular right. production. Right. For ours in that act, um, it's such a it was a really beautiful piece of stagecraft that I think you'd really appreciate. Um, Hoffman and Julietta. So Julietta is the like head courtesan of uh, basically the all of the courtesans in this opium den. Okay. So Mephistopheles is just posing as a mortal to like lure people in and Julietta is like his head slave so she lures people in and then he steals their souls which in the fiction is portrayed as stealing their shadows so then once they have had that stolen they no longer have a shadow so there's like one guy Shlemiel who like sticks around and hangs out right and uh he's like kind of their little lackey I think of him as very much like an like an Igor figure oh yeah he like kind of like hobbles around and he's very incompetent but um, they make fun of him in one of the early recitatives about they like hold a candle up and they say like the candle is over here and my hand is over here and then the candle is over here and my hand is over here but look there's no shadow you know like they're like making fun of him and he like kind of hates it but um, they take 
Hoffman, and he immediately falls in love with Julietta, and they have, like, a duet together. And um, she eventually, like, lures him off alone, and they're going to make love. And so in the production that we did, they had a six-foot um, turntable with a giant frame on it made to look like a mirror. And they had two dancers that looked like Hoffman and Julietta on the other side of the mirror. So when they stepped on, they stepped on, like, together. Oh. And then as they sang this lengthy, probably like six or seven minute love duet, the turntable starts moving and turning. So the two dancers are like in, you know, entangled and like doing a very cool, it was like a modern dance on the other side. Mm -hmm. And then as the duet ends, it rotates back to the singer's front, you know, downstage and the dancers in the back. And then the Julietta walks off the platform and the, the, the mirror walks off the platform and then Hoffman follows, and the Hoffman mirror is stuck because oh, he's trapped yes. his soul in this giant mirror now. Right, yeah. And so then the end of the act eventually, once Hoffman eventually kills Schlemiel, and spoilers abound. Uh, but, <laughs> From 1820. Well, you know, if you haven't seen it since 1820, I think, it, you know, the, uh, the statute of limitations on that has expired. Uh, but uh, so he kills Schlemiel, and then the police come, which I don't know how why the police are interested in just that one thing, but they show up, and eventually what happens is um, Hoffman breaks all of the mirrors, setting all of the souls free, mm-hmm. and escapes, but he has to leave because it turns out that Julieta wasn't the woman he, you know, he thought she was, and right. so he loses that love as well. Because mm. um, all of three of those acts end pretty badly for Hoffman. Yes, they generally do, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's not yeah. great. So. That definitely rings a bell. I mean, the, the, the idea of the image... Yeah. capturing it is um, i think the mirrors was the more true to the fiction one yeah but in the opera so it's also funny because offenbach died during writing tales of Hoffman. Oh. so in about in the middle of act four things start getting really ingenuine a lot of times um there one of his uh students finished the end of act four and all of act five but recently they found a lot of manuscripts and sketches that Offenbach did. Mm-hmm. So they've been trying to like restore it. So there's a very notable baritone aria um, from Act 4 that is not at all Offenbach's, but it's attributed to Offenbach. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't remember the name of the composer that was his student. I always think of Meyer Beer, but I don't think that that's his name. It's not really important. <laughs> but it's called Santia Diamant, and it's Mephistopheles looking at a giant gem that has a soul in it. And so I think that that has misappropriated a lot of the imagery to the gemstones instead of to the mirrors, mm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's just a thing that was done because it, Santia Diamant is much more like, you know, romantic sounding than whatever, Santia Miroir, which right. I guess would be fine, but maybe it just didn't work for mm. the librettist. Because um, that's the other thing you have to realize too, is like when they do an opera like this, it's all Hoffman uh, plots. But they have to have a librettist right. still because you have to make it the text work for the singing. So there's a bit of a blurring of lines mm. there from the original text through the librettist to the opera. Um, I just did a little segue here. Sorry. No, it's uh, I just did a uh, premiere of a new opera by a living composer named Evan Mack, uh, who's amazing. Great dude. Mid-30s, couple kids. He went to CCM back in the day, okay. and now he lives in Albany. Um, but we just did a premiere of a show uh, called Roscoe, and it's a like historical fiction about Albany government, right? So Evan does like these awesome 
like little political vignette operas that mm-hmm. are so good. One of the other ones that we did a recording of was called The Secret of Luca. Actually, he just published the score to that for the first time this month. Um, and it's, again, a political story about a small town in Italy called Luca. Um, and like this crazy thing that happens about this guy gets accused of murder, but he was innocent. And then 30 years later, he comes back to the town. And so then Roscoe is a similar thing. I don't know how much of it is historical and where the fiction leaves off. Mm-hmm. But, and of course now I feel terrible, it was, it's a book by a fairly famous American author, author that was then turned into an opera, and he's a living author as well. Oh, okay. So Evan and, and this man worked together very closely, and, um, but it's interesting because Evan has a librettist. So the librettist takes the book and has to turn it into you know, lines of dialogue that will work in a scene. Right. But since the man is still alive, it kind of has this interesting third facet where he's going back to this guy and saying, here's what I've come up with for, for this scene. Um, oh, and I didn't mention the plot. So the plot is about Roscoe, who is a uh, politician in Albany, and he kind of like puppeteers over the Democratic Party and tries to keep Albany in Democratic hands throughout his life. And so... Um, one of his friend's sons ends up becoming the mayor and Roscoe is advising him. Um, but there's this whole thing where the the man who's about to come, become mayor under Roscoe's like tutelage had like this weird incestuous relationship with his aunt who actually turns out is his mother because he was lied to for his entire life. So it's like this crazy like weird web of politics which works perfectly for opera because it's totally convoluted and like you know what I mean and unless you're paying attention it makes no sense singing the opera I had to ask Evan when we were working on the music I was like who what like who is who is doing who and what's going on here because it's very you know it's hard to to parse and especially with the opera you get a lot fewer words you know in a book you can have four or five hundred pages but in a libretto you know, you're lucky if you get 50, right. honestly. To the bone, yeah. Exactly. So it's interesting because the author was who attended the performance. Oh, okay. Which was awesome. So we got to meet him afterwards. Um, he was far more interested in meeting my wife than me, for <laughs> obvious reasons. Um, but, like, great guy. But he's very passionate about keeping, being very true mm-hmm. to the, obviously, to his book. Right. Which, you know, understandable. But um, it was very interesting it's just such an interesting experience because you're yeah. li- working with a living author, but you can still see the, not degradation, but like the changes from text to libretto to opera, right. and uh, but it's very you know very beautiful. Yeah, as you make the as you make the change from the mediums, and you have, you lose words, and you have to use you have to use other means to attempt to tell the exactly. story. You can definitely. But you can do so many other cool things too, um, because like in one scene, there's like flashbacks, and it's very easy to do a flashback. You just have the character, the singer, walk back on stage. You know, it's very easy to show that to the audience. Mm-hmm. Or like in one scene, um, after Roscoe passes away, and my character was the one who's going to become mayor, I'm like overseeing a thing, and then Roscoe's like voice in my head, and so you can very easily portray that as like Roscoe's spirit standing, the actual singer just standing on stage behind you, singing to you. And so you can do these interesting things. I mean, of course. It's just notable because it's the differences between mediums and how you can display that differently. You know, it's yeah. the differences from a TV show to a book to a movie to a song. Right. Um, which I've always found fascinating. You know, in a day where we're taking every book that's notable and turning it into a movie, it, it's it's interesting to talk about. And then turning that movie into a musical. Right. Oh, God. Yes. 
Uh, they do that with a lot of them nowadays, huh? Yeah, it's bad. It's real bad. Amelie. Really? They're turning it. That makes me sad. I love that movie. I know. That's how I felt too. It's like, ah. Is it going to be in French? Because if it's in English, that's really the worst thing. That's exactly what I was like. Okay, I can buy this as an opera, maybe just because there's. It would be great. It would be great as an opera. As a little chamber opera. Uh, Yeah, and then you and then you hold on to the French language. So and everybody is in when they go to the theater is totally prepared for (sighs) the foreign language to be there, and you have still have the super titles. I mean, but I've seen that movie so many times I don't actually need the subtitles anymore. I just. I just know it. It's funny because I, the first time I saw that movie, I knew French well enough to understand it without the subtitles. Now I would probably need them again. <laughs> My French has, has gone down in quality. It's so... This is a total tangent, but it's totally go awesome. It. I, don't, we, it. I don't get a chance to talk about foreign language acquisition like... Oh yeah, go for it. Very often. Because I have this experience when I watch German movies. Mm. Um, getting... Mostly because in order to get a German film in the United States, it's almost always subtitled. Yeah, and often the even Criterion editions are subtitled in such a way as that you cannot remove the subtitles. Oh, interesting! Like I don't, I want to pay attention to what's being Said. spoken, yeah, and not read it because your eye, like your eye, just goes there. It doesn't. Totally. I know that my brain is already processing it, but then my eye goes there, and then I'm like, but that's not exactly what they said, and then I get lost. Yeah, exactly. The, like, but but oh crap! What did I miss on screen? Right. See, now, uh, I am a different type of nerd, whereas I love that the subtitles are different because I like picking apart why they changed them. Mm -hmm. So, like, um, this is a terrible example, but I I love it. Uh, One of my guilty pleasure movies is Superbad. Do you know Superbad? Of course. Okay. Uh, I've watched that movie probably at least 100 times because I'll just put it on. I know every word. It's very funny in a cheap, good way. Yeah. And it's just background music, you know? Yeah. Um, it's got a pretty decent soundtrack of, like... It does, yeah. Like, absolutely. disco music mm-hmm. and stuff. So, uh, I... But I also found one day in my boredom that they have dubbed versions in all major <gasps> languages. They have dubbed versions? That's amazing. So, I watched one day dubbed French super bad with the subtitles. Because a lot of it... This was the interesting thing to me. My French is pretty good. I know a lot of vocab, which it's, so it's basically in all three languages that I quote unquote speak, French, German, Italian, I have a lot of grammar ability. Mm -hmm. I have very little usable vocab because I have all opera vocab. Right. So like a lot of it is, is hard to use in modern language because people will just kind of stare at you and be like, what? Are you reading out of the Bible? Yeah, right. Like, what are you saying? Because it's super 18th century. Yeah. Like, why are you talking like that? Yeah. So... It's, it was an interesting thing. I kind of took it as an educational lesson because I could watch this movie that was made in, you know, 2011 or whatever, whatever 20, it was, 2009, yeah. and it's all modern language, and it's all, like, jargon, and it's all, oh, like, yeah. very, like, a lot of it very vulgar, but you need that kind of stuff, too. Like, yeah, that's absolutely. an important yeah. thing. So it was really interesting to, like, listen to the dubbed French and hear, like, all of these random colloquialisms in French that the, that's what kids say. Um, like, instead of saying, like, what's up, they say, ça roule. Like, what's rolling? But that's, like, what a kid says in France, apparently. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Probably wrong. Or it's like, that's what some adult thinks Or about. that's what some American <laughs> thinks that, you know, is still current. It's, you know, like, people who say zut alors. It's like, no, that's in a French textbook. That's not real. Yeah, but, you know, right. that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it was, like, really interesting. A lot of it I had no idea what they were saying, but then I would look at the subtitles and I'd be like, Oh, 
that's how they say that. All of the examples I'm thinking of are terribly vulgar. No, uh, I can check the E box. I'm more than oh, happy we can, to do it. Oh, yeah, we, we can, can do absolutely that? drop right, it. So whatever bombs you want here. Like. The one that thinks, well, it's nothing like... No, well, but some science anyway. Like, sure. You know, learn to swear in so French. Let's go. The first <laughs> thing that I saw that I just absolutely didn't recognize uh, is... There's a scene in it where the character is like imagining and he's like fantasizing that the girl says like Seth, I want to blow you, and in French it's Seth, je veux te faire un pipe because to give somebody a blowjob is to faire un pipe. So it's like, there it is, and I was like, I have now learned something that's useful a- from this terrible movie. Uh, but you know, like it was just like that's the kind of stuff, and it was the same actually with Amelie when I was a kid. Yeah. It's got a lot of very fluid dialogue that's very genuinely French. You learn a lot about just how the language flows. Yeah. Because every language has its own tempo. Living in Italy in 2011 for two months, I learned a lot about, I mean, basically my Italian is now better and more functional than my French because I was there and I heard people who didn't speak English at all. Mm -hmm. Nobody spoke English in Spoleto. Um, Getting internet was... Oh yeah, it's a yeah. Task. It's so fascinating how parts of it. it they just yeah. They just don't. Yeah. It's, it's just not a thing. Yeah. Even this is a tangent. It's good. <laughs> uh, I went to get internet. This is my second day in Italy. Uh, I arrived before most of the other singers for this program. Uh, to I'm I don't remember. You know this that I, I do. Yeah, yeah. But you can definitely the, explain for, for our listeners. Yeah. Uh, I was working in in Spoleto in 2011. I sang uh, a small Rossini opera, Il Signor Bruschino. Uh, and I was singing the lead, Florville, and, you know, so I just had to go over there. <clears throat> so I went over there in an apartment, so I show up, and since I was in, a, in an apartment, and since I was one of the leads, I guess I was just on an earlier flight, so I was on a flight two days before everybody else to get there. So it was me and a bunch of instrumentalists, and then um, several of the crew members. <clears throat> and the crew members I actually knew quite well, so I was hanging out with them, and we'd go to bars and stuff. Uh... But I needed to get internet because the only internet you could find, the internet is very weird in Italy. It's very restricted. It's it's funny. You'd go to certain websites even, like not anything illicit. Right. But you'd go to websites and it would pop up and it would redirect to a government site that would say, this website isn't allowed in Italy. Whoa. Because they're like... Um, I don't know, their version of the FCC, I guess. Uh, sure. Just, like, censors things like that. Wow. Yeah. So, like, certain things you just couldn't go to. Um, you'd be on Reddit and, like, click a random link, and it would just be like, nope, you can't go to that part of the internet today because this is the country you live in. Wow. Yeah. So it's like, you hear about that stuff, like, especially with, like, YouTube links mm-hmm. not playing oh, in Germany sure. or yeah. whatever, mm-hmm. but you never hear about it on that side, and it's just very interesting. But anyway, uh, they also, they're still basically, it's so archaic. All of their internet is rationed by data. So I was... Oh, wow. It's very interesting. So it's like, it's essentially like everybody's living on a, on a cell phone data plan streaming to whatever device. So for instance, I met a woman, a Neapolitan woman in a gelateria, wonderful woman. And she like really, it was really cool because they all genuinely did really enjoy Americans. And uh, I sang with her. We like had a nice time. She gave me the Wi-Fi password. It was great. (laughs) Like, that was kind of our, like, everybody there would get there and we're like, all right, we need to collect as many Wi-Fi passwords as possible. I got one at, like, a cafe downtown. I got one at this gelateria. And I got the one at the bar across the street when I was living large. But then I quickly found out that that was, like, not sustainable because at night then when the gelateria was closed, but not super late, you know, like 10 o'clock, you go out and I would take my computer and walk over to the gelateria, put in the Wi-Fi password, and Skype 
Danielle, my mm-hmm. wife, who was at that point, uh, I proposed and then left like six days later. So she was my brand new fiance at that point. Uh, so I would call her and we'd Skype for like, you know, 45 minutes or an hour. And like two days later, the poor woman comes up to me. She sees me in the plaza. She comes up to me. She's like, oh my God, um, did you give other people the Wi-Fi password? And I was like, uh, no, I've just been using it. She was like, have you been like using it a lot? And I was like, uh, I maybe. And she was like, you can't because if we go over our limit, it'll cost us hundreds of dollars <laughs> because I had apparently run them over their like right. data limit for the month. So anyway, I had to go find my own internet. I go down to the cell phone store because basically I found out the only way to get internet was to get a like Wi-Fi stick, like a 3G stick, like a streaming stick wow, that you yeah. would get for a computer or whatever. Yeah. And uh, I walked in. 19-year-old girl, probably, like, you know, young girl, no English. That's astounding to me. I guess, I mean, and maybe it's a thing, like, when I was in high school, I took a lot of language, and I really enjoyed language, but some people took Spanish, and they couldn't pronounce it, but they still got Bs because they got the correct questions on the test. Yep. You know, the correct answers. So they didn't really speak it, but they, like, spoke it. Yep. Um, Those were air quotes, folks. Oh, mm -hmm. that's that's good. uh, That's good podcasting right there. We, which is a very common problem in America with great inflation and and uh, and just pushing people through high school. Like we, I was gonna use air quotes again. Yeah. We we instruct them in languages, but we don't actually enable people to functionally use right. them. Right. Oh, and I have huge problems with the language system in America because I've taken three of them, and in several different capacities, I've taken high school courses, I've taken undergrad courses, I've taken grad courses, and it is so frustrating to me. I've actually had to tell professors, I don't care what you do with the other students, correct my pronunciation. Yeah. Because I, sa- I said something to a professor once, and they were like, oh, no, 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 no. We don't correct pronunciation in these courses because we found that it discourages people from answering. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's half of the language. <laughs> like, if you say a word, you know, if, you know, io sono un uomo, like... They might not understand you, especially if you're in Spoleto where there's an accent mm, on top of the yeah, language. We have we run into this problem as well, it, and it, it's amazing how subtle these pronunciation problems can be because the word can be more or less the same. So, like, I uh, two examples real quick from, sure. from my experience in Germany. We were we went to a movie theater every year, uh, every week. Um, they did this whole thing where they the, the surprise showing where they didn't tell you what the movie was going to be. So, um, which was great, and I wish they would do that. In the no, States. I love it. But um, this is around the time that The Exorcist was being re-released um, on DVD. So there was a special theatrical release, and we were all like, "Oh, I wonder what's going to play tonight." I really hope it's not The Exorcist. We're not in the mood. Not in the yeah. mood. Just <laughs> not going to deal with that. So, and Jurgen, who's a native speaker of German, was there. He's like, um, "What movie?" Jurgen, we've been seeing trailers for this movie, The Exorcist. I, I, I don't, I don't know how to put it any other way. Like, is there what's the what's the German word? And we're tra- we're explaining like with the priest and the girl and the and the, the vomiting and, and all yeah. that. He's like, oh, The Exorcist. We're like, seriously? That, we couldn't figure it out. You couldn't figure that out. And then of course one of the one of the classic American butcherings of a German name. Um, almost no one says Nietzsche correctly. Mm. As in the philosopher, um, many people will not even recognize the name. I apologize, listeners. I do recognize it, fortunately. But, yeah, but many Americans will say Nietzsche because that's how it's 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 anglicized often as Nietzsche, especially if if like, and um, in German-speaking areas where like 
Pennsylvania Dutch and stuff like that. Sure. It's been a long period of time, and nobody remembers the way it was originally said. That Nietzsche is, you hear professors say Nietzsche. That's fine. Mm. But if you say Nietzsche to a German, they have no idea what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, of course not. And those are very simple. So, yeah. When do they running... even say Nietzsche, or do they say Nietzsche? Uh, that depends on dialect. I was going to say. Um, in high German, it's for sure Nietzsche. Yeah. Um, but v- there are definitely parts where it would just be Nietzsche. Yeah. Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Yeah. Really quick. I, well, you know, so the other thing that is frustrating to me is that I came, especially to German, similarly, I came to German last out of all the languages that I learned after having taken IPA courses in every language. Ah, so much easier, yeah. I base, it's super easy yeah. because then I know all the rules. Yeah. So I've actually had, my German is schlecht. It's not good. It, it's just, I have very limited vocab and and that's really the limiting factor. Like I know how to conjugate a verb, but right. it doesn't matter if you don't know a verb to say. And I don't, you know, in most, actually, it's funny because if you know how to say, what is that, then that enables you to learn at least. But I'm not just not even, I just haven't had enough German. I need to take some more. (laughs) Uh, But I knew how to pronounce it just because I had the IPA knowledge already. So like when I see a thing like that, like N-I-C-H-E, right? That's how you spell it. Uh, Nietzsche. Well, N I E T Z S C H. Now that's how I see it in my brain, right? Well, because, because the IPA, I condense it, gets rid of all of that, gets rid of a lot of it, crap. Yeah. yeah. So it would just be you know N lowercase I T snaky S. That's yes. what I call it. Yes, that's fair. <laughs> and then umlaut. Yes. Or, or, and then uh, schwa. schwa. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. Like condenses it a lot, but that's just the way that I think of it. Yeah. Um, well, and French and Italian are also. Um, and very Spanish is very similar in that, mm. as as pure French, less so. There are silences in French that are that it just would drop out of the IPA when you're spelling them. But between Italian and Spanish, like the way that it is said is the way that it is spelled, spelled. is the way that it is said. Like that's yep. that's super easy. German is not like that. German's a little more difficult. I would actually say French is more the most difficult. Mm, if, that's fair. Yeah. Like Italian is is whenever I'm talking to young singers, I say learn Italian. And learn how to sing correct Italian, because Italian is all pure vowels. Yes. There's no diphthongs. There's no mixing. Um, it's all very separated. Even the things that look like diphthongs, um, like lei, it's very defined. It's uh, my one of my early coaches defined it as a triangle. So oh, you divide up all of your quote unquote diphthongs into three parts, and the first two sides of the triangle. Are the first const- or the first vowel, and the, the last one is the third. So whenever you're singing, or well, whenever you're speaking, but you can kind of you know push it into singing as well. Right. It's lei, lei. Interesting. So it, you know it makes it because yeah. it's very like speaking Italian is just very fluid, but it's also very like metered. So everything kind of has its place and a rhythm. So when you're speaking a full sentence, it all kind of has its own place, and everything goes along at a beat. Mm-hmm. You know, so like everything in conversation is kind of like that. Right. Um, but it's funny. I remembered my original point. Yeah. I was going to segue, uh, I was gonna segue back to Yeah, it, we're since going you remembered somewhere. It, let's go. Uh, that, oh, well, you might have a different point than me <laughs> at this point. Uh, I oftentimes, my German's terrible, but if I say something in German to, say, someone at a restaurant or someone somewhere, they they a lot of times will infer that I actually speak better German than I do because I pronounce it correctly. They're, you know, so they'll be like, oh, your German sounds great. And then they'll start talking in German. And I'm like, well, I actually only know a little bit of German. I just sing it and I know how to pronounce it. Um, but it's great because like when I was living in Italy, I could very easily pass as an Italian. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, I can speak French to people and pretty convincingly sound French. German, I can sound German, but only for a few words. So that's right. the problem. Um, yeah. So, but it's it's fun. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's circling back to the to the point that led us to this tangent, which Good. is that the, which I don't remember. With um, when you're talking about Italian being very metered and having this rhythm to it, and having and being pure vowel sounds, it's very important within the meter to mm. actually pronounce it correctly. Oh yeah. So of instructing people in the language requires instruction in pronunciation, and yes, a many American university, even at the university level, won't won't discourage participation by actually correcting your exactly. pronunciation, but, which means you don't actually speak the language. You, you might be able to understand it, you might be able to hear it, but you don't speak it. Right. You can actually even write it. That's the that's the hilarious thing to me, is that a lot of students that I've seen when I was taking German, at during my master's I was taking German, but at the undergraduate level because I'm terrible, uh, and so all these kids could write pretty well, because they understood that. Mm-hmm. But and there's a length of time too. You can prepare yourself in sure. writing that you do not get when you're that's speaking to someone. Yeah, that's a good point. That's the constant, or that's the uh, the classic instant messenger problem <laughs> for us '90s kids. Yes. Uh, you're, when you're on IM, you can like be like type something out and be like, "No, that's stupid," and like erase it. Type something else, and be like, "Yeah, that's good." That's like good. with writing. Yes. You write it out and be like, "What's the conjugation of that?" Uh, yeah, like get the book, <laughs> look it up. Oh, it's en. Great. Cool. Right. Um, but yeah, you don't get that in speaking. But it's so interesting because in speaking more, you yeah, you screw some stuff up. But that's how you learn. Yes, absolutely. And you learn so much more quickly. Now the other problem is you have to have people who are willing to uh, be nice to you when you screw things right. up. Right. Because that's the other problem is, you know, I was very fortunate too in Spoleto. The people were very nice. And they genuinely enjoyed speaking Italian with me. There was a guy, hilariously, an Austrian guy who was a bartender and waiter at the bar across the street from my apartment who was like quattro or quintilingual. I mean, I'm sure he spoke like whatever, a million languages. Um, His French was better than my French. His German was way better than my German. His Italian was as good as my Italian. And he would help me. So like I would like stumble on something to say something and he'd just switch to a different language, tell me what it was, and then we would keep conversing right. yeah um, which is interesting because like as you're saying with the with the 19 year old girl in the in the data shop whatever yeah. you, whatever the cell mobile, phone store yeah the cell phone store like almost everybody in germany actually does learn english as a second language at this point especially now that the wall is down like there's it used to be that there was a very clear generational divide like yeah these Germans learned Russian as their second language, and these Germans learned English as their second Whoa. language. Yeah, like, like, oh, you're from Leipzig. Okay, you don't, that, English is your third language, not your second language. That's crazy. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's... That's so true, though, because yeah. um, I don't know if you met Martin Kieren. He was a German exchange student to Susquehannock. Oh, I didn't uh, meet him, no. Yeah. For the listeners, that's my high school, uh, one of the high schools nearby where we grew up. Uh so he was a German exchange student. He was a senior when I was a sophomore. Um, but we hung out because he was really into CSGO. I guess that would have just been Counter-Strike like exactly. 1.2 at that point or right. whatever. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, but he was into Counter-Strike. Which is enormous in Germany. Huge. It's, it's hilarious. Massive. <laughs> and so he would play D&D with us, uh, Dungeons & Dragons, because um, I'm a huge nerd. And so we'd hang out, hang out a lot. But, I mean, he was 17. His English was perfect. Yeah, oh yeah. And they got it from he, television and movies. And, right, yeah. but it makes sense. He was from Cologne. There you go. So yes, of course, yep. way west. Yep. Uh, and um, his and he'd already spoke French because French was his third language. I mean, it's just like it's yeah. nuts to me how advanced their system is for that. Yeah. Because um, they start in like third grade. Yeah. As one should. Yeah, yes, I mean, exactly. Your brain is so receptive to language at that point. Yeah. 
Um, it's it's nuts. That's why our you know my friend Megan going back a bit was teaching at this German to English kindergarten where now I guess it just also is that there's a large German population in, in that Texas. Part of Houston. Yeah. Well, in in that whole part of Texas, like all the way into the hill country. Interesting. Yeah, from the 1840s. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. I never know. Used there's to be a dialect also of German. <laughs> a, a huge German population here in Cincinnati. Really? Yeah. You know we have the second largest Oktoberfest. I did not and know that. And the city used to be called Cincinnati. Weird, right? Yeah. So we have it. We shut down the entirety of downtown for Oktoberfest. It's nuts. The streets are, you know, paved with beer. Right? Pretty much. I mean, or regurgitated <laughs> beer. Uh, uh, you know. As the but day goes on. It's whatever. pretty interesting. You know, like every restaurant has a stand. I mean, it's like it's nuts. We have a house just like oh in, wow, because oh, you guys have one in Pittsburgh. Uh, I don't know about. There is one in Pittsburgh. I mean, yeah, I, I I spent most of my time in Atwood Street in Pittsburgh. I didn't have a car or anything. Sure, so. I guess that's fair. Yeah, and you need a car here to, to get there, too, because it's, well, it's in Cincinnati, but it's, Cincinnati is such a weird city. We're right on the border of Kentucky, so half of the things in Cincinnati are actually in Kentucky. Oh, yeah. But as nice long things. as you're within 275, like the Beltway, it's kind of all considered-ish Cincinnati. Right. Um, but, like, Covington, Kentucky, and, like, stuff like that, they are their own entity, but they would still probably say, oh, yeah, Hofbrau House in Cincinnati, even though it's technically in northern Kentucky. Um, but yeah, that's a, it's a popular place to go for, uh, for college kids. Mm -hmm. Um, have you ever been to a Hofbrau house? I have been to the one in Munich. Oh, you've been to the real one. <laughs> yes. Well, I'll tell you, it looks exactly the same because it, they're all designed to look on the inside, literally like Germany. There I mean, it looks like right, yeah. Germany mm -hmm. and, um, but so you can still smoke in it because it's Kentucky. Of course. Um, you are encouraged to stand up on the benches and dance. Uh, they have live music. Five or six nights a week. All right, yeah. Um, and I mean, it's all the same beers, all brewed in house. You can see the giant copper stills and all that stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. it's really cool. Nice, yeah. Um, but it's definitely a like a. Well, there are a lot of older people that go, but when I was there, you know, on certain nights, it's definitely a young man's game. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Because it's you know, it's liters of beer. Yes. You know, you, you it's a lot. Um, but That's I nice. do remember very fondly, uh, Megan and myself and Daniel would go some of our and some of our classmates. And we went on a Monday evening one night. Which, you know, it's going to be pretty dead on a Monday. There was a one-man band. It was a guy playing an accordion with a drum machine. So he'd just start up the drum machine and play the accordion and sing. And he did all polka renditions of pop tunes. That's awesome. Uh, my favorite of which was You and Me Baby Ain't Nothing But Mammal. <laughs> which was amazing. It was so good because it was just him like playing the accordion. I mean, it was like a... It was like Weird Al kind yeah, of at that just, point. Yeah, you know that's what I mean? exactly what I was thinking. Which yeah. I'm a huge fan of, and I've always been. I don't know if you knew this, but my first live concert ever was seeing Weird Al Yankovic at the Strand wow. in New York. Oh, New York, yeah. yeah. Um, I went with um, Jeremy Fisher, one of our friends. The artist, not Judy Fisher's son. Mm -hmm. um, different guy. Because, gotcha, uh, gotcha, yeah. Well, for the listeners, at my high school, we had three people named Jeremy Fisher, which my wife thinks is hilarious because she always thinks of Jeremy Fisher. Like the you know, children's story. Anyway. Uh, but I went and like f fifth row at the weird Al Yankovic concert. Nice. You know? Yeah. Uh, during which he had a different costume for every song. When he sang Fat, he had like a giant, um, like, you know those sumo suits that like blow up? Yes. He had one of those and he would jump. And when he'd hit the ground, his backup band would jump. Like there was like a shockwave on the ground. Uh, it was so good. I love Weird Al. 13 year old me was so into that. Yeah. It was so good. I love Weird Al. Have you heard his new stuff? Uh, boo, no, nope. He's put out some 
really quality music in the oh, past yeah. like three years. Oh wow! Yeah, he put out a new album last year, and leading up to it, he did uh, like he released one track a day on Vimeo, like one music video. Oh a day yeah, on okay. Vimeo. Yeah. Um, and it was really good. Instead of um, instead of I'm so fancy, do you know that song? Yeah. So we have to get into pop music. So that's the problem is that like. This one I actually understood most of the references. His album, he put out an album in like 2011. I got none of the songs. I just didn't know. I was so right. out of the just loop as unplugged. far as pop yeah, music was right. concerned. Um, but instead of I'm So Fancy, he did I'm So Tacky. Um, and he did one for Blurred Lines uh, oh. called Word Crimes, which is all about like people who are a stickler for like correct grammar and oh, okay. correct usage of okay. your and your and stuff. Very funny. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, he's Did he always also been... get sued by Marvin Gaye's estate. <laughs> uh, I hope not. Um, I guess it's covered under parody, regardless. So yeah, and you, he's just always been so interesting. He like calls all of these people or like contacts all of them and gets their permission. Because mm-hmm. um, there was a couple where I just love the idea of him calling. What the? Uh, who did uh, Black Supernova? The Supernova? Why am I? Good grief! I'm showing my age, and I can't, oh, it's even, okay. I can't even remember the '90s band um, because they did the Alternative Polka and like Soundgarden. Oh Black yeah, Black Sun. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I just I love wonder... that conversation between him and the lead singer of Soundgarden. Well, right, or like uh, Amish Paradise, like uh... Gangsters Paradise, like. Hey, Coolio, what up, bro? Yeah, like, and and there was a couple of those. I think specifically with an R and B artist there, and I don't remember which one, but there was instances where he would say, "Hey, I want to do this," and they would say, "No." Mm-hmm. Now that's an even more awkward conversation because you're talking to whoever, and they say. Yeah, no, that's not happening. But it's like, really, it's not that big a deal. I don't know. I guess I understand if you're like worried about compromising the legitimacy of your music. But he just does wonderful things with it. Yeah, I don't exactly. know. Yeah. Um, all of his polkas, the like, uh, the like medleys that he does, yeah, like yeah. you said, like alternative polka, they're just genius. We, Danielle and I, Danielle doesn't really live the nerd life. Danielle is my wife. Uh, so I've had to introduce her to some things over the past you know, two and a half years. Um, so she never really listened to Weird Al. She, like, knew Amish Paradise. You know, she would know a couple things. She'd know that he existed. But the one night, I have it all on my computer, obviously, because, um, you know, back in the day, my best friend Greg Chenoweth and I, we used to collect all of those CDs. Sure, yeah. So I have them all on a shelf, and they are, they've are they existed on every hard drive that I've ever, you know, owned. So I just, like, put one on because I was in the mood. And she was like, wait, this is hilarious. What is this? I was like, oh, it's Weird Al. He does one of these on every album. And she was like, oh, there's more of them? So we literally took like two and a half hours and listened in order to every one of the polkas from in his first order. album. In order? That's amazing. It was really good. Oh, that's so it cool. Because it was interesting, you know, because I'm 28, so I'm a little younger. Just a smidge. Uh, but it was interesting from his first albums, because he's been doing music since, like, I was born. Yeah. Um, since, like, the Dr. Demento days, when yep. he was just, like, a call-in on a radio show. Um... So it was interesting to hear his first one, I, like, didn't recognize anything. And then the second one was, like, it starts to, I start to understand. And then it hits, like, the sweet spot of music that I was really into when I was a teenager. And then it goes back out of it again. It's kind of interesting because, you know, he's so pop culture relevant. Yeah, absolutely. To hear how that moves from, you know, it's... it's In and out of your personal stream, too. Yeah. It's interesting because of the way that... It's oh, not just yeah. Cult, it's not just its own thing. It's a reference to other things and your ability to, like connect to Weird Al depends on your ability to connect to Weird Al and to the other thing. Exactly. Which is always so the mediated, going back to the earlier idea no, totally. of the mediated oh, yeah. experience. That's with a callback. The, That's good. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's always interesting. I don't know. I don't listen to anything pop culture anymore. 
my music tastes have changed so much. I pretty much listen, it's funny, as a singer, I listen to very little music with singing in it anymore. Oh, interesting. I listen to a lot of chiptunes. Yeah. I listen to a lot of, like, the kids nowadays are calling it EDM. I but hate it so I much. I hate EDM. <laughs> I hate the name EDM. Right, I yeah, love, I love the music. Techno, because yeah, that's what, what it is, called. people. Yeah. It's techno. Sorry. Well, and, like, I'm not even sorry, because they, there's this thing, like, EDM is big now. Like, EDM was invented five years ago. It's like... No, it wasn't. Dude, pop songs have been sampling from EDM. Hip-hop, that's where hip-hop freaking started. Yes. It, uh, Daft Punk has existed since whenever, you know? For like, a kind of a while, yeah. yeah. Like 20 years probably at this point, at yeah. least. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Like, we called it techno. And actually, somebody called it EDM back in those days, too. It's just, but the cool kids would refuse to call it EDM because right. that's, like, that's a... clearly something invented by Billboard. Like. Oh, yeah, totally. Like electronic dance music. Yeah. I mean, as opposed to the other stuff i guess that's as opposed to like disco which is maybe yeah which is synth heavy anyway i don't even know what you're talking about but yeah it's weird that i get so upset about it because i love very specific musical genres uh for instance i hate that things are called alternative (laughs) i there is no piece of music in my itunes library that is labeled alternative because i refuse i refuse i refuse i just won't let it happen like uh, Weezer is obviously one of my top five bands. Sure. I used to be in a Weezer cover band. We were maybe on the front page of the Weezer website once. Sweet. No big deal. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah, we, we played a show in 2009 uh, that was uh, um, affectionately called Winterfest 2009, and it was actually kind of a disguise party um, for my buddy Matt Dorsey, who proposed to his girlfriend that day, and then she was going to show up to this like great party afterwards. But we really wanted to play a show, too, and it was fun. And somebody recorded the whole thing, and they sent it to, now I can't think of his name, the guy, the PR guy for Weezer. Oh, and it's okay, just one yeah. of It's just one of River's friends. Right. It always has been. <laughs> um, sent it to him and was just like, hey, this is a cool cover band. Like, they do a really good job. Arguably, we did quite a good job. And they were, he was like, yeah, you did. I'm going to put it on the website. So we were, like, on their front page. That's awesome. But Weezer is noted in most things as alternative. Right. That's bullshit. It's not alternative. I... No, I don't know. I, I say I, we're gonna. Are we gonna have the emo fight? <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I would classify Weezer as nerd rock. I would as well. Yes, I I, I totally agree. Yeah, and that's kind of a specific genre, but I like specific genres. Right. But it, it really narrows it down. Like, I don't know many nerd rock bands, but like Nerf Herder. Sure. Absolutely. Definitely nerd rock. Yes. Weezer, nerd rock. Like those are. There's a. It's a very specific sound. Yes. I'd actually say early OK Go is also nerd rock. I would agree with that, yes. Now they're a different animal. Yeah, they've evolved. Which is great. Crazy directions. Yeah. 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 Well, and I mean, I hate the emo label because, like, anytime a label... Like, the the problem with alternative is, as a catch-all, it's totally useless in describing the music. So, like, saying something is emo and then trying to capture Weezer and Dashboard Confessional at the same time is utterly ridiculous yeah. like that's not helpful if i want to choose something that's like weezer i will not choose dashboard no. confessional however good or not good it may be exactly it's not the same it's not a guide yeah. right right although i will say for dashboard i feel like emo is pretty accurate i agree i, I certainly yeah I mean, like dashboard saves the day yeah, like yeah stuff like that yeah it's very like Emo is more a culture than it is a musical genre. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? That's a really good point. I think that that's part of where the fights come from. Does that still exist? Does the emo thing? Uh, yes. I would argue that the word has turned into... The the, the world has gone to hipsterism. And sure. hipsterism has firm roots in emo. emo culture. But it's different. It is different. It it's is an evolution manly. of it. For sure. 
<laughs> less tight pants. Yes. Less I'm, makeup. I don't know about less tight pants. Yeah, um, I guess. Oh, yeah, I guess that's true. But definitely less makeup. More beards. More beards. That's very true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the lumberjack, the flannel thing has gotten a, a little out of control. I'll still well. go back and listen to uh, Saves the Day, Stay as You Are. It's like classic emo. Mm-hmm. It's like crystallized eighth grade for me. <laughs> like, that's dating myself, obviously. But, you know, that makes... You're allowed to date yourself yeah. because you're so young. I so. am so young it's not fun <laughs> in the opera world i'm sure it must being be really young is yeah. the worst like really hard yeah, i didn't absolutely. take any time off during school yeah i went straight through from yeah. high school to undergrad to masters which is great um it's one of those things where when i tell this when i talk about this i have to I have to mention that i'm very grateful for for all of the opportunities i've had but it makes it really hard especially as a tenor because i'm uh i turn 28 next week and uh people are like Oh, you're a baby. Right. They don't yeah. even want to talk to you. Right. Because you're not 30. Because 30 is kind of the year. 30 is when you start to have a career if you're going to have one. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm working, which is good. This has been actually a jam-packed month of work for me. But um, even though I'm working on things, it's not like career work. Right. It's like yeah. you're, you're young putting, artist work. Right. Piecemeal stuff together. Exactly. Which, I mean, honestly, that's your whole career in America is piecemeal. That's true. I mean, but it's like I did a thing with like a small opera company here. I sang a concert. You know, it's a lot more like concert work, Uh um, but not the good kind of concert work. Yeah. Um, Holy Week concerts. Well, Holy Week concerts. But I also mean like I did. Well, I did a very interesting going back to German. I did uh, the Telemann Brockes Passion, which is um, a passion similar to the Bach Passions. But actually, um, obviously composed by Telemann, a contemporary of Bach, who is far less known. Um, and sometimes for good reason. He writes some good music, but um, it's kind of like, uh, it's like store brand Bach. Okay. It, you know, yeah. Yeah, it follows yeah. the rules. It yeah. sounds good, but sometimes it's really awkward. Um, the melodies sometimes make less sense. And sometimes it's very challenging to sing because it's not as voice friendly. Because mm-hmm. um, he cranked out a lot of music similar to Bach. But I think he just didn't have the the same like talent as you know what I mean. Yeah, it's, it's a, you know you have to kind of have it to right. do that. Um, and who does it like Bach? You know, it's just that's a one of a kind. Um, but the Telema Brockes Passion is some of it is taken from I think Paul's Gospel, and some of it is taken from the writings of this guy Brockes, who like dra- dramatized oh the Passion. Mm-hmm. So. It's like a weird thing where there's more of a character named Tokta Zion than there is of Jesus. And the Tokta Zion, which daughter of Zion, yeah. um, character, she like, it's like there's a little Shana of like Jesus in the garden with the apostles. And then there's a, like two or three arias of Tokta Zion, like bemoaning Jesus's fate. So it's a v- much more like, soap opera-y kind yeah. of feeling. Hmm. And so I did The Evangelist. Oh, uh, the reason that this is notable is it's never been performed in the United States, ever. Oh. Yeah. So this was technically the United States premiere of a 400-year-old piece. That's awesome. Yeah, really cool. So I kind of couldn't pass that up. Yeah. Um, But uh, I was saying The Evangelist, which in the Bach Passions is a really great role. You get a couple arias, and you're like the main character. In this, I had 27 recitatives. <laughs> Most of which were 
a page or two long of German. Good. Grief. No repeated text. Wow. And uh, no arias. Nothing glorifying. You know, like no, hmm. no payoff. Weird. You're a workhorse. Right. I actually sat with the continuo. I sat with the harpsichordist because I essentially was part of the orchestra. Right. Yeah. I was there for exposition, and that was it. Um, but which is hilarious. Four hundred years later in the United States. Right. <laughs> hilarious. Um, and it was a great concert, but it is not the money-making kind of concert. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It was a premiere. It was for a nonprofit. Oh, you yeah. know, it's like, and then like my wife and I and a friend of ours did Carmina Burana a few weeks ago, but it was for a charity. Mm-hmm. So like when you're young, you do a lot of that stuff where it's like you're getting it on your resume. You're getting some cool things that people will notice, but it doesn't necessarily pay the bills. Right. Um, that's just kind of how it it's kind of how it is. It's true for actors, a lot of actors as well, especially in the regional theater circuit. Like, it's just, yeah. you don't, it, it's interesting how typecasting functions because a lot of people don't think they're typecasting, but they, they, but they, and they don't use that word. They like, oh no, we don't typecast. That's awful. Um, that, that does horrible things to people. It's like, but you have a particular idea of that character in your head that you yeah. will not deviate from, which is exactly the same right. thing as typecasting. We don't typecast. But we need a six-foot-tall brunette guy with, like, some decent chest hair for this role. So, sorry. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, but it, that's part of the game. I'm mm, sorry. Yeah. But, like, when you – and it's becoming very true in opera as well. You need to look the part. Yeah. People don't believe a 45-year-old Juliet who's supposed to be 15. Right. They don't believe it anymore. Right. You can't – you know what I mean? Like, it's just – which, yes, it's, it's hard because you don't want to discriminate. But you just have to be the character. Right. You know, it's funny because, like, you think about it in, like, TV and in stuff like that. There has to be, like, if there's a gag about an ugly dude, they have to hire somebody to be ugly dude number two. Right. And, yeah, maybe you don't want that to be your niche. But somebody's got to do <laughs> it. Somebody has to do it. Well, what's interesting, too, in film and television, of course, is that sure. the, the, the talent pool is so much larger. Super big. That they can... They can absolutely wait for the exact right person to look the way they need it to yep. look. I mean, if you're in a regional theater, if you're in a large regional theater and you're casting in New York, you can draw from that pool and you can be a little bit choosy. But at the end of the day, it's like you just need somebody who's going to be willing to be in Washington, D.C. for six weeks. Yep. Which may be sort of close to what you want and maybe not. Right. Uh, I personally think you, that's when you should take risks, but, but whatever. I agree. But yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting to make those choices and to be like, this isn't conventionally what we would put here, but like, let's see what we can do with this. Yeah. I did a... Did you see Falstaff when I did Falstaff? No, I didn't. Right. I didn't get a chance to see Falstaff. That's right. I did Falstaff with Virginia Opera. Uh, I guess that would have been fall 2013. Um, and uh, I get... This is kind of a non sequitur, but it's similar in that like, they hired this guy to sing Ford... Um, which is the one of the main baritone roles. He's the one who's like, kind. Of, he's like trying to catch Falstaff cheating. Oh, so okay. He's yeah, like, yeah. yeah, great singer. The the guy who we hired. Um, but I never would have known this, and it's a very unconventional thing. He uh, has. I don't know if it was a birth defect or what. He's missing more than half of his right arm. Oh, right. So it's like this is a guy who like you'd think in typecast a lot of times it would just be uncastable right but they kind of take a risk with him a lot and now for this they didn't do anything with that and he has a very lifelike prosthetic that was actually matched to his skin of the other hand so like it's like silicon like silicon wow. skin yeah looks very real and it works fine 
but he was telling me stories like he did Daughter of the Regiment, and um, in that role, he's like a general. And so they were like, they made it a bit. They made it a thing that like I had like lost my like part of my arm in the war that we yeah. were fighting. And so it's kind of interesting, you know, like similar, like you said, you can take risks with something like that. They did something where it's like, you, do, you can't do that with just anybody. You can't make that character choice. Right. Um, but it kind of gives him an interesting angle to come at it with where he's like gone through some stuff. Mm, he's mm-hmm. seen some things. Yeah. So I don't know. I always find that kind of stuff interesting. Um, but yeah, hell of a singer though. Man. Oh, yeah. That was a crazy cast. We had um, Stephen Powell was the Falstaff. His first time ever doing Falstaff. I saw him sing Rigoletto at Cincinnati Opera a few years ago. Just a cannon for a voice. Wow. Massive voice. Um, and, like, he doesn't look particularly, like, he, he doesn't look, like, imposing. You know, right. it's not like, yeah. uh, I think Bryn Terfel. Bryn Terfel's a fairly famous baritone. He's, like, 6'5". Barrel-chested, giant man. You expect that voice. <laughs> but, you know, Stevens, you know, he's a bigger dude. He's, you know, probably, like... 200 some pounds like six foot dude but he's not like imposing but he gets up and sings Falstaff and he is just the beastiest meatiest singer I've ever heard in my life so wow. I don't know it's really fun to be on stage with people like that yeah um, I was singing Dr. Caius which is a fairly large role but I was still technically a, a young artist or like an intern essentially yeah. um, but it was cool because Caius sings the first line of the show um, where he's yelling at Falstaff because Falstaff isn't paying any of his bills in this inn, and so I'm coming in to like collect a bunch of money from him. So it, it's kind of intimidating. You show up the first day of rehearsal, it's like 10 in the morning on like a Tuesday, and it's like, I'm now going to sing a thing, and then Stephen Powell is going to sing back at me, the man who I paid a hundred or so dollars to go see in a show, and he's famous, and he <laughs> sings all around the country, and now I'm going to sing at him. Like It's like terrifying. <laughs> Um, but that's like the weird thing you know like I said with Audrey earlier Audrey Luna sings at the Met and now I'm Facebook friends with her so I get to see like she lives in she also lives in Hawaii the girl's like I don't know she's crazy she's great (laughs) but it's like yep so I was in Hawaii like paddle boarding with my long hair chihuahua and now I'm in New York City at the Met and hanging out with Greer Grimsley or you know just like stuff like that you know it's nuts that you get to kind of rub elbows with yeah people like that because the scene isn't really all that big it feels kind of big but it's not really that it's big. not big especially in the states mm-hmm. i mean it, it kind of localizes itself you know like we were saying earlier the fest system over in germany kind of localizes itself yeah the american system very much localizes itself i don't do any gigs anymore without knowing at least one person right mm-hmm. i mm-hmm. mean i just did um uh it's uh the abduction from the seraglio by mozart and all five of the principals, myself included, we were all in school together <laughs> in the same class. Wow. I mean, it was just like, and it was great because they were all like four of my other favorite singers from that class. So like, great. They were amazing singers. Right. And it made for a great production, but it's just nuts. You know, you, you it's a small world and you can't say anything without everybody hearing it. Yeah. Like right now, for instance, I'm being <laughs> very conscious. The whole world. Yeah. You just never know who's gonna who's yeah, gonna absolutely. hear it. And, no, it's um, totally true. That, I, 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 a lot of the theater people that I've interviewed on this podcast have, yeah. have also very clearly measured Expressed. their words, knowing that whatever was said here would would instantly reach the the core of the community. So yep. 
um, there are definitely times when you want to like speak truth to power and you have to open up a little bit more. But um, but there are also times you're like ah that that that's that's a story for not on the air. <laughs> right, right, right. That's kind that's a that's a break story. Yeah, yeah. That's uh that's three blocks from the theater kind of story. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you have to be really careful. You know, it's hard because especially with this industry, you know, you want to you you're like you said, you want to be truthful about some things, and also you want to kind of warn people sometimes, like you know, like it's so it's hard especially like I work with a lot of regional companies where I know the people who run the companies so like I know Suzanne up at Opera Toledo I can just call her I lived above her garage the last time I sang for Toledo and so if I knew somebody who was going up there who wasn't a good singer or I knew that they were hiring so and so it's like you kind of feel an obligation to tell them but it's hard because Mm. you don't know how that's going to come back and bite you so it's a weird thing, you know, you work with a bad director and then somebody asks, how was your show? Well, right. I mean, it was great. You know, like, what do you say? Right, then it becomes a code, though. Like, right. The way, yeah. the way that you say what you said becomes It was a really stressful production, but I think it turned out all right. So, you know, it's right. it's it's yeah. very political. Yes, absolutely, as, as any small community would be. Yeah, yeah. We are at our hour. And change. Oh, is that? A, do we do an hour? Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Hey. Uh, that flew by. That was. We didn't even talk about broke music or magfest or. Oh, anything. do you want to talk about some of that? We could do a little bit. Do you cut things? Do you edit? I do. Things? I do not edit. Oh, okay. Never mind. Edit yeah, it down. Yeah. Like, um, I, I mean, know. we we could we could air a part two or whatever. But I also have to drive back to Washington oh, no, yeah, yeah, DC, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and um, we we both have to get brunch. So. We do. We have uh we have a brunch rezo. We don't have a rezo. We're just gonna go over there. But um. Oh, man, I didn't know. I should have asked you what we wanted to talk no, about. I should have probably warned you a little bit more, um, but um, it's, this, this worked out really well. And ah, it just okay. means that we have to do it again at some point. I think that's great. I love it. Maybe I'll come your way next time. Oh, that'd be awesome. Um, now, that means it's also time to plug anything. So I th- think this will probably air in May. Cool. Unless there is something like pressing you want me to plug ahead of time no no that's great so yeah um in may i will be about to leave for uh the des moines metro opera (gasps) festival in iowa sweet um so if you're living in a cornfield and you don't have anything to do um i'll be doing um mostly chorus stuff Mm -hmm. but i'll be covering pedrillo in inferno oh okay um so i'll be out there they do a lot of scenes programs it's really it's a really great program in that they do a lot of um like concerts and like so it'll be a lot of scenes i'm doing a big piece of uh ramos plate um which is a french baroque opera uh so if you're out that way do yeah. that fun fact des moines metro opera is not in des moines it's not it's in <laughs> indianola <laughs> indianola which i don't indianola is such a weird i don't know it's a weird yes name. yes but uh so if for those of you who are looking to go um i encourage you to go i actually was um if my schedule had worked out better i would have applied to be an electrician out there oh. because opera is where you get to play with all the toys and it really um, is it would be really cool des moines uh, is a great company yeah I, they I, are I, a great company by um, all accounts yeah yeah you would that would be really cool for you to work there and because i know you've done work in opera so um it'd be really great to to do that but uh am i supposed to plug things oh well i mean things that you are about to do oh, yeah okay um, that's pretty much it okay well um, i mean that's I, a big thing that's, that's, that's a cool thing yeah that's, um, uh, that's and uh, you know if people want to hear me sing a thing um, my website is just my full name.com. It's Ryan C. Connolly. Um, it'll, the spelling I'm sure will be somewhere else on the internet. Yes. There's um, a, there will be a link to it good. in the show notes. Oh, so. cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so there's, there's things of me singing, uh, on my SoundCloud there mm-hmm. that you can hear. 
Um, I, my Twitter is also linked there. Uh, I think it's just Connolly Opera. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. All right. If you're in Cincinnati, <laughs> I sing a lot there too. That's pretty much all I do. Um, so yeah, it's living here affords a lot of uh, opportunities. So mm, right. um, I always post to my Twitter when I'm singing around town. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. All right. Sounds like it's time we time to get some brunch. Sounds like it's time to get some food. What do you say? 